Well, we welcome you guys. If, if you're a first-time guest, definitely want to take this opportunity to welcome you. Those in our overflow room as well want to say uh, hello. And, and it's an awesome thing when God's people can get together. Amen? And this past Thursday night was really sweet. We, got, uh, we had a, a prayer event this past Thursday night over our Saturday services. And so I want to thank so many who came to that. And it was just a, a, a really cool time of just going before the Lord and then talking about the Saturday service. As you know, we're moving into Easter weekend. It's going to be a busy weekend. And so on the Good Friday, uh, the Friday of Easter, what is that, the 19th, April 19th, we have two uh, gathering at the crosses. And so we're going to have two services at 5 and 6.30 in which we'll gather around the cross. We'll take of the Lord's Supper. It's really a very uh, reverent, somber event as we reflect upon uh, the price that, that Jesus paid upon the cross. That leads us to Saturday, the 20th, which we're launching our new Saturday service. And so at 6 o'clock uh, that night, we will have a Saturday service, which again will be a duplicate of a Sunday morning. Uh, we're going to do our best to duplicate that, that service. And then it leads us into Easter Sunday morning. Uh, four services, seven. How many of you are going to come to the seven? Raise your hand. That's so funny. Well, we welcome your one person that said there's going to come to the 7 o'clock. So we're going to have a 7 o'clock service, an 8 o'clock service, a 9.30 service, and 11.15. And so we're going to celebrate the Lord all weekend long. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. All these stories about a church service reminds me of a story. I've been sitting on this for six days. I couldn't wait to get to you guys this morning, all right? What do you call Batman when he misses church? Christian Bale. Right? Get it? He's the actor, Christian. See, it never makes it through. So again, by the time we get to Easter weekend, y'all going to be the third service. You get that, right? So there'll be the Saturday service, there'll be the 8 o'clock service, and then there's 9.30. By the time we get to 9.30, all my jokes have already been booed, okay? And so by the time I get to 9.30, I have nothing for you. That was funny. Can I get an amen? Amen. Should I tell it at the next service? Kind of mixed reactions there. All right, Luke, well, Luke chapter 6, take your Bibles. Okay, so if you're with us last week, you know, we're walking through these chapters by chapter, verse by verse. We're kind of moving around a little bit, but we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And so we're going to pick up at verse 12, because it's really a critical event in the life of Jesus. It's a critical event in the life of these disciples. It's kind of a turning point of his earthly ministry. And as you walked in the, the room last week, we talked about the man with the withered hand. You remember that story? And I asked the question, you know, as that man got ready that morning and as that man was going through his routine, did he go to church expecting God to do a work in his life? And I asked you guys that question last week. I asked you again this week. Do you walk in the door with anticipation? Do you walk in the door with expectation that, Lord, I'm going to praise you for what you've already done, what's fixed, that, that will not change, is not dependent upon my changing life, it's fixed. So I praise you with my heart as I sing these words. And I praise you as I open your word, and I expect you to speak to me, to change me, to, to, to make a, a new work, to create a new work in my life. And so last week we talked about hope and how big hope is, right? That the enemy tries to lie against hope, that it's hopeless, that your situation is hopeless, your marriage is hopeless, this, this adversity or this addiction is hopeless. And the enemy speaks into that. But we know God's Word counters that, right? God's Word tells us that there is hope for those who know Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen? Hope in eternity, yes, because we know that we're fixed. We know that we're sealed. And so we know that our eternal home is secure. But hope in the now. Hope in the fact that God is sovereign over our good decisions and God is sovereign over our bad decisions. 
Hope in the now that whatever chaos is in your life that maybe no one even knows about and you're sitting here and the enemy's lying to you. Whatever chaos is there, he loves to whisper hopeless, hopeless, hopeless. But we know, Romans 8, 28, right? All things work together, that nothing is wasted, nothing is random, that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we now transition to something that is very dear to me. I remember as a youth pastor, I would speak to our students all the time about really these two things, hope and your worth. Where do we place our worth? You know, again, I remember this message to our teenagers all the time because it's such a battle. It's such a battle to find your worth in the things of this world. To find your identity, your value, and what you bring to the table. And let's be real, we've all done that before. And it will leave you flat on your face. That my worth, my identity, my value is found in my job, or it's found in my performance, or it's found in an athletic realm, or it's found in how much money I make, or the position I hold. And so it can go that route very quickly. But it can also go the route that the enemy takes us and says, no, you're worthless. You're not of any value. Look at the mistakes you've made. You know, look at your baggage. And he lies about that. I mean, what a remarkable truth that God not only in his grace and in his mercy would save us, forgive us, but that he would indwell us by his Holy Spirit and not only save us, but now want to lead us in a life to use us. It's mind-boggling that you're not a random thing sitting here. That whatever you're in right now, that God wants and desires to use you. So many times if you're like me, I'm just like, Lord, get me through this, right? Just get me through this. I was just talking to a young lady in the office. Just get me through this. But if we just get through it, we miss what God wants to do in it. There's something that God wants to do in it that he can't do otherwise. And I don't know what you're in this morning. But I pray you're encouraged with hope and that you found your value in the one who came and died for you. Take your Bibles and stand with me if you would. Let's go to Luke 6. And I want you to see the ordinary to the extraordinary. That's the title of the message. That God took 12 ordinary men. There's no, there's no priest in this group. There's no Pharisees in this group. There's no religious leaders in this group. These are common people, fishermen, tax collectors, uh, a terrorist, as a matter of fact. Simon the Zealot is in this group. When they surrender their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, he changes things. He changes your value, your worth, your identity. Your identity is not in the things of this world or what you bring to the table. In Christ, your identity is in the one who died for you. That you're so valued that God's son would take your place upon a cross. That's value. That's identity. And we see this here. As Jesus uses these disciples. Luke 6, beginning in verse 12. We're just going to pick up where we left off at last, last week at verse 11. And it says this. Now it came to pass in those days. Very important passage there. This is now a transition passage. If you remember after Jesus healed the man with the withered hand, the Pharisees sought to accuse him, to kill him. I mean, things are now starting to get heated. And so now you're moving into a different season here as Jesus now appoints these 12 disciples. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray. We see this all the time with Jesus. And continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them, he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. Now I read a thing this past week that said 90% of Southern Baptist preachers cannot even name eight of the 12 disciples. Let me ask you, how many disciples can you name of the 12? I was offended when I read that. And then I tried and I got to seven. So let's read down through. (laughs) 
because they're given some different names, right? It can be a little bit confusing, so I failed the test, but it says this beginning in verse 14. That's why we have it printed right here. We can go and look right here, right here. Simon, whom he also named Peter. There's always three groupings, so just think about this. Anytime you see the list of the disciples, you'll find three groupings of four. Four, four, four. Okay, and they're always in those, those three groups. Now, they can be mixed up within those groups, but there's always three groups of four. And the first four are always the same. Peter's always at the top of the list. You've got Peter, Andrew, James, and John. That's your first four. The intimates of Christ, the one who went to the Garden of, of, of Gethsemane to pray. Like, it's the intimates of Christ. You then move to the next four. Philip is always at the top. And so let's walk through these next four. Simon, also named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew. Next four. Here we go. Matthew and Thomas. So Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas. That's the next grouping of four. And then we find the last four. James, the son of Alphaeus. Simon, called the zealot. Judas, the son of James. I don't want to be that guy. And Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Now, Judas, the son of James, also goes by Thaddeus. I think I would go by Thaddeus, too, because someone would say, oh, you're Judas, one of the disciples. No, I'm not that Judas, okay? I'm Thaddeus. All right, let's pray. Let's just go to the Lord and pray. Our Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for your word, your written word. Lord, and that's our prayer this morning, that we would gather around this. That we would hear your words, Lord. Not any of ours, that we would hear your word. And so, Lord, this morning we pray that you would speak to us through your word because it is living, it is powerful, it is alive, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a discerner of our thoughts and it cuts deep to joints and marrow. And so this morning, Lord, we pray that we would just open our hearts, our minds, our lives and allow you to do the work that you desire to do. That we came into this place with expectations. Yeah, with struggles and questions and doubts. But with great expectations of what you want to do in and through us. Which is, again, mind-boggling. Lord, we desire to hear those words. Well done. And so this morning, Lord, we pray that you would align us. Align our homes, our marriages, our families. Align us to your word. May we walk And the truth of knowing that our value, our worth, our identity is in our Savior. Lead us and guide us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I saw this quote. I thought it was so good. It said, if God couldn't use the unworthy and the unqualified, then he wouldn't use anybody. (laughs) Because that's all he has to pick from. That's us. We are the unworthy, we are the unqualified. And as you look at these disciples, you find the exact same thing. They are the unworthy, they are the unqualified. And so we find ourselves in this passage. We find ourselves with a perfect Savior in His graciousness and mercy looking upon these human men who bring nothing to the table. It's us. We bring nothing to the table except an availability, a willingness, a heart that surrenders. It's not about our ability. It's about our availability. How available are you to the work of God? We know our natural tendency, right? Our natural tendency. We wake up. Our mind goes. We go here. We got to go to school. We got to do this. We got to answer emails. We got to do whatever. And I wonder how many times the Lord is just like, won't you just stop and pause? And spend time with me. But again, the enemy doesn't care what he distracts us with. And what I've learned in my own life, that he has a tendency to even use the blessings of God. The things that God has directly blessed us with, our families, our marriages, our children, our grandchildren. 
how easy it is for our minds to go to these earthly things. We're earthly beings. How could it not? And so there's this battle, and Paul talks about it, this battle between the spiritual and the physical and the child of God to be able to say, Lord, give me lens for the eternal things. Allow me to see my life. Allow me to see others, not just for the now and not just for the struggles of the now, but for eternal things, for the things that last, for the things that do not pass away. Allow me to live for those things. But there's a battle every day, right? Our, our natural self wants to live for the stuff that's in front of us. The stuff that we get consumed with. And many times the things directly that God has blessed us with. The enemy doesn't care what he distracts us with. But he desires to take the unworthy, the unqualified, and do something amazing. That's the story of the disciples. The ordinary to the extraordinary. I love the passage in 1 Corinthians 1, 20. I'll just read verse 26 if you want to skip to the second slide. It says this, For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh. Can we relate? Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen what? The foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. We look upon these disciples, right? I mean, they turned, they literally turned the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not because they were talented, not because they were gifted, not because they were educated, because they were sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the recipe for a life that God uses? Right? I mean, I think we all desire that. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I would dare to say that you have a desire to be used. That you have a desire to be light in darkness. That even if it may be a workplace or a struggle, you have a desire for Christ to be seen in you. And so what is the recipe? What does God use? He uses a heart and a life that surrenders. Right? That's what the Bible says. That lays their life before the altar of God and says, Lord, my life is yours. How can it be that you would die for me? And so because you died for me, I live for you. There's a battle, right? There's a battle every single day. But what you find in this story is what? He took the unworthy, the unqualified, and transformed them by his power. To do his work. Look at verse 12. Look at where it begins. The prayer of Jesus. It says this. Now it came to pass in those days. It's now transitioning where things are getting heated, right? I mean, his life is now being sought after. They are seeking to kill him. As we know, this is going to lead us into Easter. And then he went to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. You see this process of prayer, right? All you have to go do is go to the Lord's Prayer. There's many of us that can quote the Lord's Prayer. You go to Matthew 6, verse 9. And you find the Lord's Prayer. I remember when I was, you know, in college, we would recite this before games. But the three things that stick out to me in this passage, think about this, Matthew 6, 9. What does he say? When the disciples come to him and say, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. Our Father in heaven, what does he say? Hallowed be your name. Where does he start? He starts with just praising the Father. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time when you went to prayer that you started By just praising him. Not jumping right to your list. Notice this. Jesus doesn't go right to his list. What does he say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Then what is the next line? Your, your, on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. So what do you find? That even before Jesus begins to get to the provisions and the list that we, that I, naturally jump right into, that's not the process of prayer. Every time you see Jesus separate himself, the first thing I believe as we see in the Lord's Prayer is that he begins by just praising. And you want to talk about powerful. Are you hurting today? You're struggling today? 
Start praising Jesus. And what happens, right? The the Lord redirects our minds. He redirects our thoughts. Now we're looking at it through a different lens. And even before we get to our list, what do you find in the process of his prayer? Not only hallowed be your name, praise, but Lord, align me to your will. Your will be done. Ain't even got to the list yet. Lord, my life is yours. Align me to your will. Praise. My purpose. And then he comes. Give us this day what? Our daily bread. Only enough bread for the day. And so, Lord, I'm asking you to meet my needs today. We'll worry about tomorrow when it comes. And so I think about that when I see this, right? I mean, you see this constantly as Jesus removes himself. If you go back to Luke 5, you see this. You go back to Luke 5, verse 15. It says, however, the report went out concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Verse 16. So he himself often, it says, withdrew into the wilderness and he prayed. Here is Jesus seeking the will of the Father. And we know that, right? All throughout the gospel, what does he say? I am here to fulfill the will of the one who sent me. The number one desire of Jesus, the number one priority of Jesus was what? To fulfill the Father's will. When's the last time? I'm convicted in this. When's the last time we went before the Lord and said, not Lord, change my circumstances, but Lord, allow me to your will. Don't let me miss your will because I have a tendency to step out. I have a tendency to run ahead. I have a tendency to stay behind. I mean, here is Jesus, right, in his true humanity. Here is Jesus emptying the prerogatives of his divinity in the independent exercise of his attributes. He submits himself to what? To the Father's will. And it says in verse 12 at the end, and he continued all night in prayer to God. The little translation there is he spent the whole night in the prayer of God. My seminary professor would be encouraged by this. This is known as inter-Trinitarian communion. I had to go look that up, so don't be impressed. Inter-Trinitarian communion. What do you find? You find the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, inter-Trinitarian communion. I mean, again, again, a great mystery. But Jesus seeks the will of the Father. Before he does anything with the disciples, what does he do? He prays, and he goes through the process of prayer. Do we follow that pattern? Do we follow that pattern? Not just with the big decisions, but with our daily lives. Do we follow that pattern? That, Lord, before I even make a decision, I want to seek your will. Before I even speak something, I want to seek your will. I want to praise you for the fact that you're on your throne, and you've aligned these circumstances in my life, but don't let me miss it. Don't let me come to the mindset of just get me through. Just get me through. If I can just get through this. But if I just get through this with my eyes on something else, I miss what you're trying to do in my life. The storm of those disciples, I think about it often. Jesus sent them into that storm. He fed over 20,000 people. And he said, go get in that boat and cross the Sea of Galilee. They were being obedient. They're just doing what Jesus told them to do. And what happened? They find themselves in a storm. A raging storm. Not because they were outside of God's will, but because they were exactly where they were supposed to be. And Jesus makes this statement. We see it there. Had you not gone through the storm, you would have missed the work that I'm doing in your heart. How many of you this morning can attest to that? 
The Bible says in verse 13, it says what? And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve who was also named apostles. We know there's a difference between a disciple and an apostle. We know that all throughout the Gospels, what you find is sometimes the writers will talk about just disciples as as learners, as followers, as as the ones seeking Jesus. Sometimes they refer to the disciples as the twelve. But there's a difference between the two. The word disciple means learner, follower, student. The word apostle means messenger with authority. That this individual is standing, being sent by whoever it is as a representative with authority, with power. And so we know that not all disciples were apostles, but all apostles were disciples. Does that make sense? There's a difference between the two. So here is Jesus, by the will of God, chooses these 12 men up until this point. The Bible just says they're in the crowd. They're a part of the other disciples, the learners, the followers, the students. They're just kind of following and listening and observing and watching and absorbing. But now the time has come for Jesus to appoint them. If you remember this passage in John chapter 15, verse 16, it says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Twelve. Let me ask you a question. Why twelve? Why twelve disciples? Anyone know? It goes back to the Old Testament, right? How many tribes of Israel? They were what? There were 12, an interesting passage of Scripture that God would take ordinary men, fishermen, tax collectors, a a trader, a, a, a terrorist, that God would take these ordinary men and do something extraordinary. And you go to the book of Revelation 21, and it talks about the new city. It's a description of heaven, a description of, of the new Jerusalem, and it talks about the 12 gates. Some of you have read this before, Roman, uh, Revelation 21, 9. And on those 12 gates, they have names that are inscribed. On the top of those gates are the 12 tribes of Israel. But guess what names are laid at the foundation of those gates? The names of these ordinary, common men for all of eternity. Their names are placed upon these gates. God can take an ordinary, broken life and do extraordinary things. Maybe you walked in in pieces today. What do you do with it? Well, Jesus, like the man with the withered hand, says, what? Come to me. Don't hide it. Bring it before me. And in my hands, there can be a miracle. Look at what happens here in verse 13. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them, he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. Why does he call them to himself? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. If you go to Mark chapter 3, verse 13, you'll find this passage. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those who himself wanted. And they came to him. Listen to this, verse 14. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him. Notice the two-part process. That they might be with him and that he might what? Send them out out to preach. So we see what's happening here, right? Jesus calls these 12 to himself, but he calls these 12 to himself for a purpose, not just to stay within the inner circle. He called them to prepare them. He called them to convict them. He called them to change them so that he could send them out and turn this world upside down with the gospel. Six times Luke mentions these disciples. Over 20 times Luke mentions them in the book of Acts. And the Bible says that they are critical to the work of God. Common, ordinary men. The Bible says that these men, the foundation of the church is laid upon. Listen to this passage. 
Ephesians 3.20, having been built on the foundation of what? Of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The Bible tells us that these men were to be the receivers of divine truth. Why do we have truth in front of us? Because these men were inspired by the Holy Spirit to pass this along. Ephesians 3.4, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. This is what Paul says. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of man, but now, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to where? To his holy apostles and prophets. They were to be the builders of the church. Ephesians 4.11, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers for what? For the equipping of the saints, the in for the out, the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying the body of Christ. Men who genuinely desired to serve Jesus, but hard-headed men. Can I get an amen? We can relate to this, right? You see them fighting. You see them bickering. I mean, you see the humanness of these guys. I mean, we're talking about guys whose names are inscribed on these gates for all of eternity, but they're just men like you and I, except for the ladies. But they're just like people, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they're sinners. They have baggage. And Jesus never covers their defects. I want you to notice that. All throughout the scripture, it's never something that Jesus just passes over. He brings it to the surface. Because when it's brought to the surface, the work can be done. It's the man with the withered hand. It's not hidden back here. It's Jesus, man. I got this stuff, man. I've been carrying it. Tired. Been hiding it. It's been exhausting. And I'm broken. My worth is being attacked. My value, my identity. And yet Jesus says, what? Bring this to me, a broken life, and I can do great things. These disciples, 12 common men. You don't find any priest in this list. Common people with an extraordinary calling. We find this list in Matthew 10. We find it in Mark 3. We find it here, obviously, in Luke 6 and Acts 1. And we always find these three men at the top of these three groups. Let me read it again. Simon, also named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, called the zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. All common men, all of them were from Galilee. None of them was a Pharisee, a Sadducee, a priest, a scribe, four fishermen, one tax collector, one terrorist, and a traitor. That's what Jesus used. And the enemy attacks us of your value and your worth. And we place it in the fleeting things of this world. And yet Jesus says, watch what I can do with a life that is truly given to me. What do you find in here? That it's not ever about the person. Because if it's about the person, then the glory doesn't go to the Lord. You find this recipe every single time. It's about the truth of God and the power of God in the person. It's about a life that says, I believe in this, I trust in this, and I'm going to be obedient to this. And I'm going to walk in this. It's a life that says, not only, Lord, am I going to seek you through your word and align my life through your word, I'm going to surrender to you. And let's be real. I stand on this stage to tell you it is the hardest thing to do. I challenge you in the morning, wake up. Wake up and engage how fast your mind goes to other things. See how quickly you can capture it to the Lord, to eternal things. Because it doesn't come naturally. 
And so what is it? It's an intentional discipline that says, Lord, I don't know what's coming today. You do. There's hope in that. There's peace in that. But I'm going to walk according to your word. And I'm going to walk surrendered. I'm going to walk sold out. I'm going to walk saying, Lord, wherever you want me to go, I will sign the blank contract. I remember a professor saying that years ago. God presents us as a blank contract. And the question is this, not knowing where he may take you, not knowing what he wants to do, do you trust him enough to say, I sign on the bottom line? No questions asked. And then as you walk with him, what happens? Line by line begins to get revealed. But the question is this, can we surrender to that? These disciples did. And because of that, what? God changed the world through the power that was living in them. I want to go to this verse, and I'm going to close with this. Romans 12. This is always my go-to verse. When I was doing youth ministry, man, this was, this was, this was very critical to me because I know my personal struggles. As a teenager, growing up in the church and knowing truth, but still trying to find my worth in the things of this world, my value in the things of this world, my identity in the things of this world, regardless of whether it's a job, a sport, or even academics, we run down this path that leaves us on our face. And so I always come back to this passage. When I was teaching students, this was the passage I was always land on because I know what it means to me, where Paul says in Romans 12, I beseech you therefore. Well, therefore we know connects us. You've got to go back and read uh, Romans 11. He's just truth after truth after truth of God's love, God's mercy, God's grace. And he comes along and he says, I beseech you. I beg you. Put your mind on that. Here's the challenge. Wake up and put your mind on the mercies of God. The mercies of God that my day is not going to change, right? The mercies of God that is fixed. He says, I implore you, I beg you by the mercies of God to what? To live sacrificially, to present your body as a living sacrifice. The hardest thing for a human being to do, to say, Lord, I relinquish my control of my life. And I trust you. Sacrificially which is holy, acceptable God, which is our reasonable service when you look at the mercies of God. And what does he say? Do not be conformed to this world. Here's the challenge. Does the world know that we belong to him? Does your family know that you belong to him? Not conformed to this world, not looking like this world, not going the direction of this world, not when the world looks upon us, they see a mirror, but they see a window of Christ. That's a good question. Not conformed to this world, but pay attention. Transformed how? By the, say it with me, by the... This is sanctification right here. The renewing of the mind is what? When a child of God says, okay, I'm going to align myself to this. I'm going to spend time with this. What happens? By the power of the Holy Spirit, there's sanctification. There's growth. There's the renewing of the mind. Your mind begins to think differently. You look at things differently. Rather than just seeing the here and now, you see the eternal. And there's peace and there's joy and it stabilizes you. Do not be conformed, don't look like this world, but be transformed. It's the picture of metamorphosis. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. It's a change on the outside that begins where? On the inside. That, hey, I look differently. Not physically, I may have gained some weight and got a new haircut, but I look differently. I talk differently. I act differently. My friends notice that there's something different. Can it be said? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Bottom line is this. Are you really sold out to Jesus? Let's just think about this for a moment. If God came to you right now and says, I am sending you wherever. Do we trust him enough? 
to hear those words. I mean, just to hear those words. Well done, my faithful servant. You had struggles. You had seasons. Just take a moment and imagine that for a second. To stand before a holy God. To stand before God in all of His glory. Not exposed in our guilt, in our sin, but covered by the blood of Jesus. Can it be said about our lives? If it happened today, would we hear those words? That's the question the Holy Spirit keeps asking me. Would the Lord find me faithful more about Him than about my own stuff? Would the Lord see a heart and a mind that is set on the eternal things, not on the temporary passing things of this world? Would my mind be set on Jesus, who gave his life, that I might have it? With every head bowed and every eye closed. Man, you look at these 12 disciples, and I don't know about you, man. I, it's a miracle. That God would choose the ordinary, the common, to do the extraordinary things. And in the midst of that, I guarantee you, the enemy lies. Your value, your worth, your identity. And we seek it in so many other places. Let's be real, we do. And so many times, me and the Lord has to bring us back. So I just simply ask you this morning, I mean, I, I ask you just to take inventory of where you are, man. First of all, do you know the Lord? That's always the first question. That what we do in this place is about the gospel. It is not about religious activity. I pray that what you hear is a relationship with the Son of God who came and died for you. Because as sinners, we stand against the Holy God. As sinners, we stand guilty before a Holy God. But I pray, man, if you're here today and you've never called on the name of Jesus... It doesn't have to be in a church service. It was for me, and it was for many in this room. But even right where you're sitting, you can say, Lord, man, I surrender. I call upon your name. I turn from my sins. I need your power over those sins. I am no match for the strongholds of my life. And so what do I do? I lay my, my life upon the altar. I die to myself so that you can fully live. Maybe you're here and the Lord's just leading you just call upon the one name by which we are saved. We have pastors that will be up here. We have our leaders up here, our response team. Listen, we've missed the mark if we miss that right there. To the believers in this place, I just simply ask you the same thing that I've been being asked all week. What is our lives about, really? 20,000 feet, if we took a view of our lives, what are we about? What are we about? What do we really seek? What do we really live for? Can it be said? There's no question. We live for the one who gave himself for us. If you're here and you're hurting, darkness and the enemy is lying and maybe this morning it's just as simple as the man with the withered hand Lord here it is 
Jesus. It's ugly. I'm embarrassed. I can't carry this no more. And it's only by your power that you can do this work in my life. But listen, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. It's surrender. And then it's more surrender. And it's more surrender. And it's more surrender. you to stand right where you are, if you would, as we go through the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you in this place, and Lord, again, first and foremost, our minds go to the cross. Our minds go to a Savior. Our minds go to Jesus Christ, who did what none of us in here can do. He lived the life that met your standards. He met the mark of your holiness and your righteousness. And then he willingly for sins. Or may our minds not move too far from that, regardless of what we're in, what we're going through. May our minds not move too far from that. Lord, you desire to now take us into places and use us in people's lives. May we not miss that because of our own stuff. Lord, I'm praying for myself right now not miss it because of the stress of life and the requirements of job, whatever, Lord, may we not miss communion, fellowship, in the quiet moments of our day as we walk with you, and as we rest in the hope that you are victorious. And our worth, our identity is the fact that we are sons and daughters of the King. We are sons and daughters of the King. Regardless of what this world says about us, we are sons and daughters of the King. And all of God's people say, Amen.